Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good as a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get more accountability and better discussion. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming at at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet read the great Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Genesis, which is a great book, one of my favorites. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. This is our eighth show on Genesis, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3. We had three chapters on that first creation account, had one show on chapter 2, and then two shows on chapter 3. Last week we did Cain and Abel, and so where that leaves us at this point is focusing on men for a moment. We've seen the silence of Adam, and now we've seen the violence of Cain. And so men are slated to lead by God and to serve, but so far it's not looking real good. The next passage, starting in chapter 4, verse 17, is famous for its obscurity, and I hope to shine some light on that. And it's famous for its confusing nature, and I hope to uh, put some clarity into that for you. And then we'll wrap up with an introduction to one of the most famous stories in the Bible, Noah and the Flood. Lord, be with me today as I speak through this uh, challenging passage. Give me uh, words to say. Give the audience ears to hear what they need to hear from this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're starting in Genesis 4.17 today, and the passage today is one of the most obscure and one of the most confusing passages in the Bible. And we'll wrap up with an introduction to Noah and the flood, which is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. So we have quite a ride to go on today. Looking forward to it. So let's start in chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. So the verse starts with Cain laying with his wife. This is the same language of procreation that we saw at the beginning of last week's reading in chapter 4, verse 1. And she gave birth. So we're back to the multiply and dominion part of the commission given to Adam in chapter 1, verse 28. Verse 17, Enoch's name means initiate, discipline, dedicate, train up. As Cass notes, Cain initiates a family to which he will dedicate himself. And of course, that's admirable, but it also begs the question, to what end? What will you be dedicated toward? So dedication is nice, but dedicating yourself to the wrong stuff may not be all that great at all. And as we've seen, Cain has gotten off to quite a rough start. He names the city after his son. Not sure what to make of that. I guess that could be cool. Uh, could be... A symbol of more pride, but you can think of worse names for a city, I suppose. His wife is interesting. 
Now, where did he find her? One of the things that we don't know, and the, the narrative is so sparse, and we'll spend some time later on this as the passage continues on. There are some potential clues and within the confusion here, but maybe there's a time gap is one easy explanation that there are unspoken daughters. We know daughters show up in chapter 5, verse 4. That's the first explicit mention to them. Even so, it's interesting that given that Cain has left the Lord's presence, um, it's, you know, at least figuratively, uh, then it's a little troubling that a wife would join him in that and align themselves with their brother's murderer. So we'll come back to that later. Verse 17, back to the idea of a city. Remember that God, as part of the sentence against Cain for his murder of Abel, had committed him to wandering in verses 12 and 14. So him settling down in a city is a sign either of further rebellion or perhaps it's a reprieve of unspoken but additional grace. In any case, God does not disrupt that, so we at least have mercy here. This also introduces another mystery of the passage, who and how many people formed the city? Is Cain building a city of dreams? If I build it, they will come. Again, we'll have more to say on this later. What we can say at this point is that the word city is from root words, meaning to watch and to wake. This connects back to Cain's fear in verse 14. As Cass notes, it is not the market or the shrine, but the watchtower or outpost that first makes a city a city. Now, biblically, cities are a mixed bag. They're good news in that they're natural stemmings from the formation of households, that households will gather and form into larger groups, which eventually become cities. But but the bulk of the evidence in Scripture is that cities are bad news. Cass notes they are rooted in fear, greed, pride, violence, the desire for domination. And he points to the city's aspiration to self-sufficiency, none of which is good news. Cities are certainly at least correlated with trouble, maybe causal with trouble, or it could be that cities just get our attention because there's lots of people and so it's trouble concentrated in one area. In any case, we do know that government is a pre-fall institution back in Genesis 2, so seeking and establishing some form of formal human government is inevitable. And from there, it's the Christian's duty to help redeem that. But we've also seen poor human government over self, as in Genesis 3 and in 4. One of the famous statements about government is that if men were angels, you wouldn't need much government. But of course, then you're using non-angels to do the governing. So we can't have high hopes for what is probably a necessary evil, uh, that you have to have government. And hopefully it's redeemed, but we can't expect great things when people are wielding power over others. P.H. Reardon notes that it's ironic that this first great effort at the exercise of social cooperation was inaugurated by a murderer. And he also notes that St. Augustine in the City of God commented at some length on the manifest travesty that such a great enterprise of brotherly cooperation should be started by a man who killed his brother. And Augustine goes on to compare this to the founding of the city of Rome by Romulus, who had killed Remus, his own brother. All right, now we move on to verses 18 through 24. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other Zillah, 
Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. So this first genealogy is Cain's, and it has a focus on Lamech, who is a representative of heightened evil. Now, Cain is the first son, which is not a good sign biblically, as we've talked about. The first son is never favored over the second son. Uh, so it's, that's interesting. The culture values the first son. The, the Bible uh, never does. And he's the only one alive at this point in the narrative. This will underline sin and trouble as it perpetuates through Cain's line. Verses 17 and 18 tells us that Lamech is the seventh from Adam. And of course, there's a figurative uh, symbology here, right, where the number seven is a picture of completeness and here complete evil. 19 gives us the origins of polygamy, altering God's ideal plan for marriage and family. Here, Lamech wants more kids and thus more power. Verse 19, his wives Adah and Zillah, their names mean ornament and shadow or defense. And so the children here are meant to adorn and protect. And we see that in the verses that follow, verses 20 through 22, we've got art and music and tools. With Lamech's kids, civilization flourishes. So we have advancing technology and culture, including an allusion to the Bronze Age around 3000 BC. P.H. Reardon notes that music is a cultural form that is conceived in evil, but which God takes special care to redeem. And we see that throughout uh, the Bible. Of course, there's examples of music being used for ill purposes. Uh, for example, Daniel th chapter 3, verse 5, Nebuchadnezzar uses music to try to intimidate. And then uh, Reardon also notes that music is apparently not available in hell in Revelation 18.22. So music is a wonderful thing, but it must be redeemed. Now notice that there are probably other sons and other children that are not mentioned here. So why not? Well, no key accomplishments. And there's no desire from God or the writer of the scripture to spend more time than necessary on Cain's troubled line. Notice also there's nothing about God or faith here. Focus is temporal accomplishments, and they are impressive, but they're only temporal, worldly, and earthly without redemption. Philippians 3, 19 and 20, Paul writes about those whose end is perdition, whose God is the belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven. It's not a necessary leap, but it is a common leap to go from people who are externally well-equipped and talented and gifted to internal pride, and that's what we see continuing in Cain's line. Now, verses 23 and 24 gets rough. Lamech proudly kills another who had wronged him. From there, he moves into an interesting style combination, pride and poetry, strength and song. It's not clear whether he's threatening his wives or bragging to them. And this is a sad reversal of Eve, Cain's mother, who was excited to create life, 
Cain and his descendants look to threaten and destroy it. We can link Cain with Lamech here, that the civilization established and developed by Cain takes us from fratricide, where he kills his brother, to wanting to rule over others. Both of these deny human equality. Both seek to remove rivals and to destroy brotherly relations. Notice also that Lamech is presuming his ability to do justice and judgment, to avenge, in tandem with his self-exaltation in verse 24. In chapter 4, verse 15, God had promised sevenfold punishment for Cain's killer. Here's Lamech supposedly going to do 77. Of course, in the New Testament, this resonates with Matthew 18, 21, and 22. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And that's not quite Lamech's approach to things here. Now, by recounting Cain's story, it implies some knowledge of God in some form, which is interesting, right? This is not uh, a wholehearted atheism. He's making reference to uh, the encounter between Cain and God here. So he's claiming that he's greater than Cain, and that's interesting because it's an early worship of progress, progressivism, that it's historical, but it looks down on that history, the present and the future, are always much greater than the past. It also implies that he's greater than God, right? By his 77 trumping God's seven, given the promised level of vengeance. And so we go from Cain's self-sufficiency to Lamech's claim to be godlike. Wrapping this up, as Cass notes, the Bible's picture of human nature conveyed through its first stories of human life is, to say the least, sobering. The tales of the primordial family underline the dangers of freedom and reason, speech and desire, pride and shame, jealousy and anger. Okay, on to verses 25 and 26. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. First thing to note about these two verses is they're not chronological, right? The text is being organized by line of and type of humans uh, at this point, going through Cain, and now we're about to go through Seth. Verse 25, after Cain and Abel, there's a third recorded child, Seth, when Adam is 130 years old. We learn this in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Seth explicitly replaces Abel, but he implicitly replaces Cain, who has disappeared. This follows Adam and Eve's double loss. What could be worse than having a child die? How about having one killed by the other, right? This was a terrible thing, and Seth is sent to be a replacement for both Cain and Abel. Now, Seth's name means God has granted me, which is a wonderful name, speaks of gift, grace, and gratitude. Cass notes here, the menacing outcome of the line of Cain begs for another way. The story ends as it began with a new birth, and it echoes closely the details of the birth of Cain, but there are crucial differences. No longer boastful and excited, Eve is indeed subdued. Only gratitude, it's received as a gift. Seth, unlike Cain, will be less likely to suffer from excessive parental expectations. Tragedy has humbled parental pride. Seth's son is named Enosh, which means simply man, which implies that he's mortal. Again, Cass notes, the greater modesty of the new beginning is evident in the names. And then finally, a wonderful ending here, verse 26 ends with, Men began to call on the name of the Lord. 
That's vague, but relatively impressive, especially compared to Cain and Abel's attempt at sacrifice, Cain's sarcasm with God, and Lamech's noisy bragging. So we do have some hope as the passage ends here in chapter 4. All right, great place to take a break. Please consider supporting the work at Christianville Foundation in Haiti. They provide food, education, and health care to over 1,600 children daily. Listeners can go to www.christmasgiftoflife.com. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first segment, we covered Genesis 4, 17 through 26. And now we move into the genealogy of chapter 5. I'm going to open by reading verses 1 through 8. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years and then he died. Now, this may be the first time you've ever looked at this part of the Bible, but Cass notes something I think important. He says, little attention is paid to the events that led up to the flood or to the reasons why God might have caused it. The only intervening material between the gentle genealogy of Genesis 5 and the flood are a few enigmatic verses in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And Cass then concludes, we need to read carefully, right? This stuff is not in here by accident. The events of chapter 6 are famous and a big deal. So let's try and read what the text gives us and learn what we can. The first thing to note is in verse 1, the word account. It's the second time we've seen this word. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 4. And thus, it's the third account in Genesis of 12. The book of Genesis is divided into 12 accounts. This is, therefore, the third creation account, which is pretty funny. It's being technical, but usually we talk about the two creation accounts, but but this is really a third creation account as well. Uh, The first was cosmological. The second was prototypical humans interacting with God and each other. Here, God plays almost no role. This account is mostly describing how the human race grew, looking at demographics and history, at least representatively so, and hence at what leads to the flood. Now, this genealogy and this account is somewhat promising. Uh, we Certainly more so than what we saw at the end of Genesis 4, where we weren't sure if the human race was even going to survive, uh, given what Cain's line was up to. There's some wonderful little things in this account that give us some hope. Verses 1 and 2, there's the reference to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Uh, It retains Seth in the genealogy. Verse 3 mentions likeness and image. And verse 3 also fulfills the be fruitful and multiply of Genesis 1, 28. Adam is identified here as Seth's father when with Cain and Abel, he was overshadowed in the birth of Cain and overlooked completely in the birth of Abel. So it's good to see Adam back in the story again. And opposite that, Cain and Eve don't show up. In fact, they don't show up anymore in the Old Testament at all. There's also no mention of Genesis 3's punishments and curses. 
And from the long lives that are mentioned here, it seems that they're living presumably reasonably prosperous lives, right? The long lives are also helpful for allowing them to multiply more effectively, although the passage does underline man's mortality on the earth. As we talked about at the end of Genesis 3, that too is gracious, right? Given that uh, man is struggling in life uh, and in relation to God and others, a limited lifespan with the prospect of heaven afterwards is far more gracious than eternal life on a semi-hellish earth. Okay, now a few thoughts in terms of an overview of the list provided here in chapter 5. Verse 4, the daughters now get first explicit mention here. You might also notice there are 10 generations this time, from Adam to Noah. This is in contrast to the seven generations mentioned from Adam to Lamech through Cain in chapter 4, and as we move from fall to flood. The importance of individuals here is interesting, especially on Seth's relatively godly side. Finally, Cass notes that the line of Adam and Seth is simpler and gentler. It contains no inventors or warriors, and later its most distinguished members are closer to God. We'll see Enoch in Seth's line, chapter 5, verse 22, and that's in contrast to Enoch in Cain's line, chapter 4, verse 17. There's a Lamech on Seth's side who is in much better shape. We'll see him in chapter 5, verse 29, compared to the Lamech on Cain's side, chapter 4, verse 18, and following. All right, we're going to jump down to verses 21 through 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. First, a small thing, Enoch is fathered by Jared in verses 15 through 20, and that's an overlooked biblical name to point out in passing. Enoch, as Lamech on Cain's side, is the seventh generation from Adam. The other easy comparison is that the Enoch on Cain's side, who was Cain's son, carries the name of Cain's city. And here we have, obviously, a more godly description of the Enoch on Seth's side. In particular, we're told twice that he walked with God, and this implies choice and purpose versus merely living, which is mentioned eight times throughout chapter 5. The rest of Seth's line is reasonably impressive, but Enoch obviously stands out. The walking with God is reminiscent of the second half of Ephesians, which starts in chapter 4, that as as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life or walk a walk worthy of the calling you have received. So this is the verb that dominates the second half of Ephesians. After Paul has described their resources in Christ, then he gets to their responsibilities in Christ as they walk with God. Verse 21, this started at age 65. Verse 22, he walked with God for 300 years after the birth of Methuselah. Kind of an interesting side note here that often people's relationship with God changes after they've had children. Of course, the highlight of the passage is verse 24, then he was no more because God took him away rather than he died, as we mentioned earlier. Enoch escapes the curse of death, and this is mentioned in Hebrews 11.5, as opposed to a Hebrews 11.13, which talks about the heroes of the faith dying in their faith. And Enoch then joins Elijah in 2 Kings 2.10, 
as the only two people, aside from Jesus, to be taken up to heaven without uh, without dying. I guess even Jesus died, right? So Enoch and Elijah are unique in this regard. He's brought home early compared to the 800 to 900 year lifespans of the other patriarchs. It reminds me of Michael W. Smith's great song, Kentucky Rose, and talking about someone who died early, that God wanted maybe the company of his Kentucky Rose. He's also brought home before the flood, which is interesting. Uh, One, he's delivered from it, but second, you might wonder, why didn't God leave him on earth to influence the world further? What did others think of Enoch leaving early? Eh, Maybe they were happy to see him go. Jude 14 and 15 says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch was quite the prophet and maybe they, they were happy to see him go. Other big passage here is Hebrews 11, 5 and 6, Enoch's in the Hall of Faith chapter. It says there, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I love verse 6 of Hebrews 11 because it's the basics of faith, that you have to believe God exists and that he's a good God. He's one who earnestly rewards those who seek him. The other cool thing here is that Enoch was not exposed to much, at least that we're told about, about God. Peach Reardon has some great comments here. He says, living before Noah, Abraham, and Moses, Enoch was participant in none of the covenants associated with these men. Not a single line of Holy Scripture was yet written for him to read, much less did Enoch ever hear the message of salvation preached by the apostles. Yet he was so pleasing to God by his faith as to be snatched away before his time. What exactly did Enoch believe then, that he should be such a champion of faith for the church until the end of time? The epistle to the Hebrews explains, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This was the sum total of all that Enoch's faith told him, God's existence and his own duty to seek God, to obtain the singular blessing that scripture ascribes to him. Okay, verses 25 through 27. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. So 969 years, that's the biblical record. So uh, Methuselah is fairly famous for the long life. And it turns out to be the case that he died in the year of the flood, When you add up the numbers in chapter 5, verse 25, chapter 5, verse 28, and chapter 7, verse 6, he died that year. So he was either taken out by it or just beforehand. It's interesting that his name means when he dies, it will come. Uh, And so it may be the case that it's a prophecy that uh, of the flood to come. It's also interesting, and I'll spend time on this later too, that given the long lifespans, he was a contemporary of Adam, Enoch, and Noah. And uh, that's a pretty big deal we'll come back to after the break. All right, verses 28 through 32. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. 
After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So in verse 32, we're introduced to Noah and sons. They're the only sons or children mentioned, and they seem to be their only children. Perhaps some other children had died earlier, but seems more likely to read it straight up. But he's 500 years old here, which is interesting, among other reasons, that all of the famous patriarchs had trouble having babies. And so Noah joins that gang as well. Along with Lamech on Cain's side, these are the only two to speak out of their lineages. And here, Lamech on Seth's side is moaning under the curse, whereas Lamech on Cain's side was taunting the curse. Here he names Noah in verse 29 in light of God's provision, and he's probably more correct than he knew about Noah's comfort. Very prophetic there. Okay, a few thoughts on the genealogies. One question that comes up here is, are genealogies selective? Are there gaps? Sometimes there are biblically, uh, but probably not here. Father can be interpreted as ancestor, but if you look at the details of the passage, and that's too long of a discussion to go through here, if you've got questions on this, feel free to reach out to me on Facebook. Uh, If you read the text in detail, it does not seem to be the case here. Now, that said, the years are at least symbolic in part. Now, whether that's a literary device or it's providence at work, we're not so sure, but there are some interesting numbers here. Enoch was 365, and that happens to be the number of days in a year. Here in this passage, verse 31, Lamech on Seth's side was 777 years old. Well, 777 is a very interesting number. And then it's in contrast to the seven that Cain's... uh, judgment was supposed to bring, and the 77 that Lamech on Cain had promised back in chapter 4, verse 24. Now, there are exactly 10 names here, including all the generations from Adam through Seth to Noah, and we'll see the same number in chapter 11's genealogy. It's also the case that Adam to Lamech on Cain's side versus Enoch on Seth's side is seven names, and there are a number of great parallels between the lines Again, too far to go uh, as a tangent in this recording. If you're interested in details, again, send me a message. But again, the comparison is meant to be made between Lamech and on the Cain side and Enoch on the Seth side. Last consideration is the history is really sparse here. I think we have to ask the question, why? And the bottom line is it's really all we need, right? What's been established is burgeoning evil. The second chance for Adam has failed. We've got the silence of Adam and the violence of Cain's line, and we're about to try something new, which is the flood, and starting over with a godly man, Noah. Further details would not add to describing God's character, man's character, or God's redemptive plan. And so the old covenant setup continues, God's rescue plan, which ultimately culminates with Jesus Christ. All right, great place to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Uh, Old episodes are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the last segment, we were wrapping up the genealogy in chapter 5. And so far, I think we have a lot of, okay, that was nice uh, detail. Appreciate the help there. But aside from that, can we do anything else with this passage? And Cass notes that to discover the worm in the family tree, we must read with a magnifying glass and with a timeline and a calculator. 
and he's very helpful here as are as are other authors so using years from adam's creation using that as the numbers here here's what i have for more than a half century between 874 when lamech is born and 930 when adam dies all nine generations of humans at least seth's line and they don't seem to have contact with cain's line until chapter six all nine generations are alive at the same time then adam dies the first natural death Cass notes the prophecy of human mortality is at long last fatally and fatefully fulfilled how will human beings especially the men react to the discovery of their unavoidable finitude i think that's important right because death has been promised for a long time but they haven't actually experienced it death in the abstract is different than death in the concrete noah then who's born in 1056 is the first recorded man to be born after adam dies he has no direct or indirect contact with eden and its prospect of immortality cast notes noah is the first man who enters a world in which death is already present the first man who grows up knowing about death for noah unlike his predecessors mortality is a received part of the human condition thus noah not adam or cain is the prototype of self-consciously mortal man for us this is akin to knowing about death intellectually rather than experientially right it's different to know about it and then you have a relative or friend who dies or one who has a serious car accident or a health scare death feels different when we experience it so where does mankind go from here Cass observes in the meantime the rest of mankind goes boldly and heroically wild offended and angry the death-defying warrior a desire for glory and immortal fame and that takes us to chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them the sons of god saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose then the lord said my spirit will not contend with man forever for he is mortal his days will be a hundred and twenty years the nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of god went to the daughters of men and had children by them they were the heroes of old men of renown this is almost certainly the most difficult passage in scripture so what can we add here the first thing is in verse 2 that the word saw is here the verb to see again their eyes get them in trouble as they did eve in chapter 3 verse 6. they see that they're beautiful okay uh, as cast notes appreciation of beauty is one thing desire to possess it is another and we saw this also in chapter 3 verse 6 that eve's seeing it led to taking it and of course here we're moving from taking god's fruit to taking other people both of which are quite troubling verse 2 any of them they chose and so we've moved from the polygamy of chapter 4 to men with harems here along with the word then in, in verse 3 it seems to imply improper intermarriage of number and or type notice also that the problems in verse 2 stem in part from verse 1 which is more and more contact with others as population grows as they multiply and presumably as trade increases and thus dominion so fulfilling the covenant in a way but not in a way that's helpful not a good sign for God's initial plan as we'll see uh, eventually culminating in the next story with Noah and the flood all right a couple of big mysteries here who are the sons of God and the daughters of men mentioned in verses 2 and 4 are they worldly are they divine 
Now, they could be angels. We find similar language in in uh, the book of Job, but probably not. Angels don't seem to have relevant gender. Uh, Matthew twenty two thirty, Jesus talks about this. If they're fallen angels, this would imply they have creative powers, even to create life. That seems unlikely and inconsistent with later. If that's the case, it leads to uh, the exercise of power by Satan and his fallen angels that would uh, be hard to reconcile with the rest of uh, history. The most common interpretation here when thought about more so is that we're talking about humans here. And so often it's assumed to be one from Seth's line and the other from Cain's. Cass provides evidence for both views, but concludes, quote, in the end, it may make little difference. The result is mixed marriage with an illicit mixing of the godlike and the human leading to the corruption of one by the other. I think we can also say that in any case, this is going to be redeemed by Christ as the son of God becomes the son of man so that the children of men could become the children of God. Now, verse four is the Nephilim and who are they? The words often translated as giants, which is perhaps okay, but the root words here are to cause to fall. Here they're defined in verse four as the heroes of old men of renown and combining them, they're proud warriors, but from a biblical worldview, they're just sinners in God's economy. Verse four also says they were around afterwards. And that's as hard to understand, uh, certainly not post-flood, given what happens in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Nephilim, then, is probably more a type of person rather than a biological race. We see the same term used in chapter 13 of Numbers when the 12 spies go into Canaan uh, when that doesn't work out so well. Now, one theory I used to get really excited about was uh, written by, that I first saw, by Dick Fisher. F-I-S-C-H-E-R, first read it in the Washington Post, August 17, 1986, and he called it the theory of injection. And his thesis was that Adam was injected as the first human with a soul into the world and with Eden, and that he was coexisting with other prehistoric men, but he was the first to have a robust or any relationship with God, perhaps. And this does answer a bunch of questions. Uh, You know, where are all the people? Back to chapter four, right? Well, who was Cain afraid of? Where did Cain get his wife? How did he form a city? Uh, And then maybe here, even the intermarriage with Seth's line may be explained by this. I'm not so sure at the end of the day whether this uh, holds any water or much water, but it's at least intriguing. And it does point to just how lost we are in finally interpreting this passage. So here's what we do know, right? This is a very sparse narrative that leaves us with many reasonable questions, but questions that are ultimately, ultimately not relevant. Second, this was written to Moses's audience, not us. And so that's the way we interpret all of Scripture. We understand that it was written to the local audience, and then we try to understand it. It's just really difficult uh, with a passage like this. And third, we'll talk more about this uh, toward the end of Genesis 1 through 11, that there are things called literary theories that take a more literary approach to the first 11 chapters in particular. And I'm not going to give them complete weight, but I am going to give them some weight. And if you give literary theories some weight, it takes some of the pressure off of trying to interpret passages like this. But we'll come back to that later. 
One final mystery in this passage, verse 3, the upper age limit here is reduced to 120 years. Cass says this is difficult to translate, much less to understand. It's clearly a negative comment, a response to and criticism of the deeds of the sons of God. Now, there are two interpretations of this. It could be that individuals at that time are limited to 120 years, and this would be a declaration of judgment against that generation. It would also point to 120 years for the people of Noah's time to repent in line with 1 Peter 3.20. And then there's also the figurative nature of the number 120, which is 3 times 40, both of which are figurative for God's completeness and here his complete patience also allows time for Noah to build the ark as we go forward. Second interpretation is that, is that this is individuals for all time. The lifespans would be limited to 120 years. Now, this is not the case immediately biblically because we have uh, chapter 11's genealogy, which doesn't allow for that. And there are certainly some present day exceptions as well uh, from what we read in the newspapers every once in a while that if you eat enough yogurt and you live in uh, Siberia that you can live past 120. We could also just read this more figuratively, right? That typically you're not going to live past 120, uh, and that's fine. Again, bigger picture, we can view this as one of God's plans, and this would be plan three, people to live on earth long enough to recognize and choose or reject him, long enough to fulfill their destiny, and long enough to receive the training they will need for the new creation. Verse 3 seems to fit along with this, that it says, my spirit will not contend. And the idea here is encouraging them to aim for heaven uh, rather than trying his patience. Leon Cass takes a similar line here. He says, later God will elect the path of external law, but for the time being, a different tactic is here to shorten the lifespan to 120 years. Presumably, very great longevity invited, mostly very great mischief and danger. Now, this could have gone either way. Cass goes on to say, because death was for so long, so far out of sight, these men were able to forget their mortality and pretend to immortal godliness. Yet when the inevitable happened, they behaved worse than all the animals. Perhaps if men learned from observing the deaths of others that they too had limited time, they would use it better. Perhaps if they could not pretend to immortality, they would be more open to the truly eternal but the strategy of a shortened lifespan is to no avail, at least in the short run, as the sequel makes plain. And so again, as we open, the question entering chapter 6, verse 5 is, we've had the silence of Adam and a bunch of others not recorded that haven't spoken up. Maybe they should have. And we have the violence of Cain, Lamech, and company. What's going to happen next? And unfortunately, it's not going to be a pretty sight. All right, great place to take a break. Please consider supporting the work at Christianville Foundation in Haiti. They provide food, education, and health care to over 1,600 children daily. Listeners can go to www.christmasgiftoflife.com. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 4 through 6 today. In the first two segments, we tried to bring some light to the obscure passages in chapter 4, verse 17, through the genealogy in chapter 5. And, and then in the last segment, we dealt with the really confusing passage, probably the most confusing passage in the Bible, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and hopefully brought some clarity to that as well. That brings us to a much easier passage. Uh, we will introduce Noah and the flood in this last segment. And we'll handle verses 5 through 12. 
All right, let's read verses 5, 11, and 12. The book ends of the passage. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And then verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So we just move from probably the most confusing passage in the Bible to arguably the roughest, nastiest verses in the Bible. Verse 5 talks about great wickedness and that every inclination of the heart was only evil all the time. Even if we read this with some hyperbole, uh, still a terrible passage. Every inclination, only evil all the time. Uh, One commentator said it's perhaps the Bible's strongest statement about sin And it's not just actions here, it brings the heart into it, the motives and the thoughts. Of course, Jesus would do the same, Matthew 15, 18, and 19, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Again, perhaps this connects to the shorter lifespans in verse 3 as a plan. Cass observes here, curbing man's lifespan might help in the future, but now every inclination of the human heart was bent on badness. So the plan is not working, at least in the short term. Verses 11 and 12, the, the word corrupt appears three times, corrupt in God's sight, and verse 11, full of violence. Reminiscent of Psalm 14, 1 through 3, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So this is speaking of evil in general terms, and it's nearly universal in extent. It's not about idolatry, at least explicitly so. That's going to be the big Old Testament sin. Here we're just talking about basic injustice. And we've moved from the individual sin of Cain and company to just broad social struggles. Are there particular deeds? Again, the post-flood emphasis on murder, as well as Cain and Lamech's exploits, probably provide a hint of this. Uh, It's also alluded to probably in the covenant that follows the flood in chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. So murder and violence seem to be uh, at the top of the menu. Verse 12, the word people, translated by the NIV, is literally flesh or meat. And this can refer to animals or people. So it's as if man is acting like an animal, or perhaps animals themselves are committing sins of a sort. Animals are probably now carnivorous. Maybe this was caused by man's violence around or toward them. Were men eating meat? They weren't supposed to. They would be allowed to in chapter 9, but for now, this may just be one form of disobedience. If you're going to kill other people, uh, why not eat some meat? So they're probably eating meat and acting like animals here. I think the other thing looking forward is this points to the implications for having peace on the ark, as well as Noah's post-flood sacrifice and the post-flood allowance for them to eat meat. All right, now back to verses 6 and 7. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind who 
I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I'm grieved that I have made them. In a nutshell here, we have a picture of grief, pain, pity, and profound disappointment experienced by God. And there are other passages that do something similar. Ezekiel 6, 9, God was grieved by their adulterous hearts, their lusting after idols. Isaiah 43, 24, you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. Ephesians 4, 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, do not quench the Spirit. Isaiah 63, 10, yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit so that he turned and became their enemy and he himself fought against them. So God says he's grieved and sorry he's made them. Is this a picture of God regretting something or changing his mind? That's the picture we're given here. But you got to hold that in contrast or in comparison to other passages where God does not change. Although we're pictured here as if God is surprised. We saw this earlier too, the animal names in Genesis 2, Cain's opportunity to change. All of us have a, a chance to respond to God in free will. How do we reconcile our free will with God's omniscience, but ultimately God doesn't change his mind, even though that's the picture that we're given here. I think the easiest way to think about this is that it's akin to parents with a rebellious child that they created, or a spouse breaking one's heart, that the heart is broken, and say with a child that you don't regret, you know, giving birth to the child, but, you know, there's that that sense of that within the life that's been created there. It's also, I think, a kind of a teacher-student relationship comes to mind here when we think about what we know about their potential, we, that, that the teacher knows the student can be so much more. But if the student doesn't achieve that, there's a sense of regret. And I think there can be a regret given what God had to do to them in terms of punishment and discipline. Think about judging a hardened criminal. No judge is going to you know, be excited about that, or a good judge won't be, right? But it's just what has to be done. God is changing his approach, not his mind, might be another way to think about it. I think all of this also is in contrast to our usual response to this, which is just straight up anger, an anger that's not particularly constructive. Verse 7, basically, I'm going to wipe them out. Great verse here, Second Kings 21.13, I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. God does judge evil in his own timing. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Lawrence Richards notes here, all human suffering so far described has come as a natural consequence of human choices. Where God has intervened, it has been to rescue and preserve. Now, however, Genesis introduces another Old Testament theme. If the suffering which comes as a natural consequence from sin fails to bring men to repentance, God will act in judgment. The last observation and question here is even the animals, wiping them out? number of answers here. The first is that sin affects others, including innocence. Under man's corrupted dominion, they unfortunately would share in man's judgment. We read this in Romans 8, 19 through 21, that nature is also hoping to be delivered from bondage. It also shows the extent of God's wrath. One pictures an artist slashing or just destroying a picture that just isn't right. It's also a picture of God starting over. And this uh, points forward to the purpose of the old covenant and its limitations and eventually the new covenant. This is just not working and God's going to start over. Practically, destroying the animals uh, would have required maybe a bunch of lightning bolts 
and that's not going to be effective. So the flood will do a better job at that. It's interesting that aquatic life is not destroyed or there's no need to judge it and start over. And I think the last consideration here is if there's going to be fewer people, then you need fewer animals perhaps so that a man can still have dominion, reminiscent of Exodus 23 verses 29 and 30, that the, that the man-animal ratio needs to be reasonably proportionate. All right, verses 8 through 10 to wrap up here. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 10 has Noah's three sons. We met them back in chapter 532, and they will play a key part in the narrative uh, in the next few weeks. Verse 9, this is the fourth account. So we've had three creation accounts, and now we have a re-creation account about to happen with the flood. In the narrative, as in life, it's interesting that the evil of verses 5 through 7 and 11 through 12 surrounds verses 8 through 10. Righteous Noah and his family is being surrounded by evil in the literary sense, and then God is going to intervene. G. Campbell Morgan says God's judgments are always discriminative in their exercise and beneficent in their issue, right? In the middle of all this evil, God is going to preserve righteous Noah and his family. In this, we see both God's mercy and his judgment. Matthew Henry says none are ruined by the justice of God, but those that hate to be reformed by the grace of God. And as we see here, verse 8, Noah found favor and grace in God's eyes. Now, he's described in verse 9, not as perfect, but as a righteous man. This is the description also given of him in chapter 11, verse 7. Note also that it doesn't say he was righteous. It says he's a righteous man. So it is emphasized that he's a man here and presumably the leader of his family. And of course, this is in contrast to the silence of Adam and the violence of Cain. The third description is that he walked with God, same language used of Enoch in chapter 5, verse 22. And finally, the second description is the one to spend the most time on, that he was blameless among the people of his time. Now, one can read this as he was absolutely righteous in some objective sense, or one can read it as at least compared to the people that he's around, right? That the quality of his righteousness is relative Or one can read it as if it's despite the people of his time. In the face of the world's depravity, Noah is still blameless in the face of that. You know, it must have been pretty rough to be Noah. You can picture him pre-flood asking Habakkuk's question about how long as he endures all this garbage around him. In any case, Cass notes, God tries to renew the first creation under the leadership not of an innocent Adam, but of the naturally righteous Noah. And again, the punchline in context is that Noah and his righteousness is being contrasted with the heroic worldly men of chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. God's going to wipe that out, start over with Noah, and we'll go from there. Good to be with you today. Podcasts of previous episodes are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Interact with me on Facebook. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.